previously on Colors. Listeners and previous guests sound off about their experiences. This was an incident that involved something that I've actually covered uh, as a reporter, but never actually had happen to myself. I was a victim of a carjacking. I came to the U.S. when I was two months old. I was a two-month-old baby with my parents, and we came to Vietnam, or we came to the U.S. as boat people from Vietnam. I remember an African-American guy came to me, and he was talking to me, and he says, why don't you go back to Africa? The phrase justice delayed is justice denied has its roots in criminal justice, but this week I got a good reminder that it also refers to social justice, and it came in the form of a black and white newspaper photo that I'd never seen before, but once I did, I couldn't take my eyes off. Off of it. Some very compelling and intriguing stories. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Lena Sun is a Washington Post reporter on the national desk focusing on health. I was the reporter leading our COVID coverage at the start of the pandemic, starting January 8th of 2020. She writes, my mom died while I was covering COVID. It changed my views on grief. No one was at her side when she when she died to hold her hand, to see her, to know that she had she was no longer here on this earth. That painful period was punctuated by a rising wave of Asian hate. As a reporter, I was absolutely aware of it. And as a Chinese American with the face that I have, I was absolutely aware of it. And I was so angry. A complex story of healing, resilience, and understanding. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. I'm willing to bet that we all have a story about someone we lost during the COVID pandemic, whether it was a close relative or distant relative or friend. I read a piece in the Washington Post written by Lena Sun, who is a decorated journalist, uh, and she talked about her loss of her mother, her loss of her sister for different reasons, and how it impacted her. It was a very moving story about life, loss, and race. Lena, you wrote a magnificent piece um, about your work, about your mother, your mother's unfortunate death from COVID, and I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but you said um, in the, in the in the the headline of this piece that your experience changed your views on grief. And I want to talk to you about that story, but I want to talk to you about some other elements as well, including some racial uh, elements of that story, things that were going on at that time. And, and unfortunately, things that uh, Asian Pacific Islander uh, Americans are still going through 
in part because of some unfortunate activities that took place during that time. But first, tell me about your experience with your mother and have her having COVID. I was the reporter leading our COVID coverage at the start of the pandemic, starting January 8th of 2020. And if you recall, that first wave of the coronavirus pandemic, people were freaking out. Everything was closed. Um, there was confusion. There were no vaccines. And the masking policy was very confusing. And if you recall, back then, there was not clear-cut guidance on whether you should or should not wear a mask. That did not come out until late March, early April. And that was because there was a lot of political influences on the decision. Um, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had recommended in internal memos to the White House in late March that people wear masks, face coverings. The White House, under President Donald Trump did not want to put that out because of the fear it might cause about the economy, all a lot of political reasons. And so that did not get put out officially as guidance from the White House until April 5th, I believe, early April. And when they did so in a widely televised broadcast, President Trump said he would not wear a mask. So right away, the public health message from the government was, you don't have to do it. I think in hindsight, if the public had realized that it was important to do that to protect their loved ones and themselves, people would have done a better job. And the people caring for my mom, the caregivers would have put on masks sooner, they would have been protected sooner, and my mom would have protected sooner but she died April 30th, relatively quick death and painless, but no one was at her side when she, when she died to hold her hand, to see her, to know that she, had, she was no longer here on this earth. I'm very sorry about that experience. Um, there you. were so many people that went through that and thank you for writing this story and humanizing it in so many different ways, not only as a reporter, but as a daughter. Uh, you know, this, that, that is one of the most important things, I think, about this whole thing. People left this planet without being able to see their loved ones. So when did you grieve? When did you start to grieve? I started to grieve when the, the, the night we got the... We knew that this was going to happen because her oxygen levels had started falling, but we didn't know when. And of course it hit me right away as soon as we found out. And the grief overwhelms you. And then of course, along with that was incredible guilt. Why didn't I go up to see my mom more um, and figure out, way, figure out a way to be there? Um, and then of course, because of COVID protocols, we couldn't hold a memorial service for her. My mom was a celebrated writer. She was known throughout the Chinese diaspora. Her books, more than two dozen novels, short stories, collections of essays. Many of her novels were made into movies, um, you know, in the, in the Chinese speaking world. 
So she was very well known. And I am sure that so many of her fans and others would have wanted to have a memorial service to celebrate her life. Very, very rich life. But we couldn't have one. And so I was grieving the entire time I was cleaning out her apartment. And as so many people know, when you go through your loved one's belongings, you find those photos, the letters, and it just hits you again and again. I found a letter that I had written to her, she won a prize for her best known, her breakout novel. Um, and I remember looking at the, she kept all those letters. And in that letter I had written to her, you know, could she come back and see us soon? How much money was she getting for this prize? And um, all of the correspondence that she had with her fans, with, with, with everyone. And the most moving thing was I found the newspaper clippings of when she won it uh, $1,000 back a long time ago. That was a lot of money Yeah, for a short story she had written in English. Um, and it, all the newspaper clippings had described her as bursting into tears when she won the award. It was, it was amazing to see these, these things that she had kept. Yeah. That's, you know, seeing those things. Yeah. My father passed away a few years ago and we went through that same process. And so I understand what you're getting at there. And, you know, those moments actually stick with you long, long after that happens. So, um, how did this experience change the way you grieve or change the way you view grief or grieve? Well, it was, it's sort of compounded. And I don't know if it, this part of the interview, you want to jump ahead already, but it was not just my mom, but also my sister. So what I learned really was that comparison and how I felt differently after my mom died. And then last summer when my sister died, she died during COVID, the pandemic, but she did not die of COVID. And what I learned was that it did not matter in this pandemic, what you died of, whether it was COVID or cancer or a heart attack, but it was the, it's the circumstances around your death and the predictability or the unexpectedness of it. So when my mom died, I grieved, I was sad, I felt guilty. I especially felt like we didn't have closure because there was no memorial service, which is why I made a point of finding a place where when she was cremated, I could bear witness. And um, that day, which happened to be Mother's Day, I spoke a few words. I placed the flowers and the letters my brother and sister had written, and I read a poem, and the funeral director in this day and age was able to take it on his phone, and I was able to share it with the family. So we had, we had something. Um, but then I was working, and I had to go back to work, and I just put the grief over here. You know, I had to dive back into work, and it was a way to distract me, I think. And over time, I tried to process it. It was very busy. And then I think when my sister died, then it was like a double whammy because her death was so unexpected and so fast. And she was 
younger and not expected to die before me. How did all of this change your views on grief? I think that I, what I learned was that I had felt guilty about the moments of joy that I was able to find in being with friends or hiking or doing fun things. And I always felt like I shouldn't, I should, you know, maybe I should be more sad. I should be grieving them more. I should be dreaming about them. And what I learned was that the most common response to grief and loss is actually resilience. And people, that people do not completely fall apart for long periods of time. And that it's also very common to feel guilty about not feeling like you're falling apart. But it is a sign of the resilience of the human spirit to be able to move on and to know that you, that grief is only part of life, that you need to laugh and cry and tell jokes and process. And, and that was, that was very comforting to me to learn, to learn that. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable um, to, to have that kind of space in your, your brain and, you know, just in your, your, your process, your, your, your life at that time to, to embrace that. One thing else, Lena, that was going on was this wave of hate that was sweeping the country. And there was this ridiculous allegation that Asian Americans, Chinese Americans were spreading COVID, were the cause of it. And none of it was true. Um, but there are a lot of people that believed and acted on it anyway. So how were you impacted by all of this while all that other stuff was going on? Because I know as a reporter, you're absolutely aware of it. As a reporter, I was absolutely aware of it. And as a Chinese American with the face that I have, I was absolutely aware of it. And I was so angry because certain officials at the White House would get up. And I, let's just speak frankly here. Trump would get up and keep talking about the China flu. And I remember early in the pandemic, our office was downtown. 13th and K Street in busy downtown Washington. One night I left the office to walk to the Metro and a truck came barreling around the corner. He rolled down his window and yelled out a racist epithet at me. I was shocked. Nobody has called me by that name since I was in elementary school. Um, I live in a cosmopolitan city. All sorts of people work here and nobody has ever called me a racist name in, in all these years until the pandemic. And then of course we had the killings in Atlanta. And I thought to myself, you know, I cover the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as part of my beat. I go to, well, I used to go to Atlanta often before the pandemic. I thought to myself, geez, will I be safe if I go to Atlanta for my job? Um, And then you saw all of those instances of women getting beat up, pushed on the subway, um, attacked by random strangers just for how they look. It infuriated me. 
you know, I wish I had known you during that time because <clears throat> I spoke to your colleagues, Michelle Lee and um, Ellen Nakashima. Um, and I spoke to them both at the same time on this podcast about, we were talking about that time frame, And what you're sharing is pretty much the, the exact same sentiments that they shared. And, you know, there, I, I, I kind of saw this quiet anger within them. They didn't express the kind of anger that you have, which is warranted, and I'm really glad you did because you're, it absolutely needs to be heard. The words need to be put out there. The people who incited this kind of thing, President Trump did exactly what you said he did, uh, and it needs to be put out there. Um, one of the things that happened, and you, you, you alluded to that with the Atlanta killings, but it wasn't just in Atlanta. You know, you're from New Jersey, and I'm sure you know uh, about the situations in New York, situations in on the West Coast and all over the place here in Washington. Um, so how, what did you do personally to um, make it through that time frame uh, or to cope with the, all, of, all of that going on at the same time that your, your mother, you were grieving your mother and your sister? You know, as Asian Americans in this country, that is always that has always been an issue um, because you are always treated as other because of how you look. And we joke in our newsroom <laughs> the, the this first question you always get asked is, no, 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 where, where so where are you from? right? It's not, are you from New Jersey? Are you from California? It's like, where are you from? You must have been born in some other country. And that is something that I have lived with my entire life. Um, very educated people may turn to you and say, oh my God, your English is so good. You don't speak with any kind of accent. And I'm thinking, well, I guess the New Jersey accent doesn't really come through. But um, you know, that is something that you carry with you. And as, as, as a person, as a reporter, I do my best that when I am in communities where this kind of stereotype is strong um, because of, you know, racial animosities, uh, longstanding racial animosities, I do my best to make connections with individuals. So people see me as me, but then they also maybe think, oh, she, she looks like that, but she, she's, she's pretty American. Um, Try to make a connection as, as the individual. So they see you as the individual. And I am glad I have a job as a reporter where I get to talk to all kinds of people from all walks of life, many of whom would have never, ever run across or come into contact with someone like me because of where they grew up or what they do for a living. Yeah. I feel the same way. Um, you know, as an African-American, I've had some of those same things happen to me, but this, I won't get into that. Um, another conversation another day, maybe even offline or something, but do you feel safe when you go around the country to do your work now? Um, because this whole anti-Asian hate thing is still growing in some places. It's still continuing. How do you, do you feel okay? Do you feel safe when you travel? Well, 
I have not traveled for work since the pandemic. Um, I have traveled um, to Vermont because my when my sister was sick. So I would be going, I would be flying to um, Burlington, you know, multiple times over the summer. I felt pretty safe in Vermont. Um, if I had to travel to some places where this kind of sentiment is probably stronger, I think I would be careful about where I would go at night. Um, I probably wouldn't hang out in certain kinds of bars. Not that I hang out in bars anyway, but um, if I had to go to small rural parts of the country where um, the electorate voted a certain way overwhelmingly, I would want to make sure that, you know, I was okay, or my photographer was with me or, you know, the person I was with, um, because I'm not that big of a person physically. Yeah. I, I hear you. And uh, I think exactly the same way. Um, focusing on my own ethnicity and my own concerns and about race in certain places and certain times. And there are simply just certain places that I think several times about when I go to these places, how to handle what it is that I need to, how to handle my business if something comes up, you know? So um, one question I'd like to ask you before we run out of time here is looking at your, your piece, what is it that you want the readers? I mean, and this is a fantastic, it is a very moving piece. It is from a reporter and from a daughter. It is from an American citizen. It is from a descendant of Chinese ancestors. It is from a global person. And, you know, there are so many people and audiences that can plug into this and get something from it. What is it that you want us readers to get from this piece? I think the most important takeaway for me, and I was lucky because I'm a reporter and I get to ask people questions for a living. And so when I was on this journey, I thought to myself, well, what is going on here? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this way about this and this way about that? So I was able to interview Mary Frances O'Connor. And in talking to her, I learned that everything that I was feeling was normal and part of what so many people are going through and that struggle to separate what is grief, which is, which is the acute emotion that may come over you, that in my case, my wrists would hurt, my throat would hurt when I, when I heard my sister's voice or saw a photograph and it hits you like waves and it's never gonna go away. But grieving that process where I, figure out how to learn with the loss of this person um, and sort of deal with that hole in my soul that is never going away, but that I can sort of sit around it and, and accept it. That is something that will heal with time because my brain will figure out that this person is gone. You still have that relationship, but you are going to be able to get through it. You will have, you will have that resilience. And that was, that was so comforting to me and the emails and messages I have gotten from people around the country, I think they have 
felt like they were seen and heard and it was comforting to them to know that you can have all these different feelings that grief is this this melange of feelings but that grieving is something that you will learn to do and for most people you will learn to get through it without falling apart and that you have to live a full and meaningful life and that includes everything including tears and crying and joy well bravo lena's son because what you you've done you've captured the sentiments of so many people um, in this country and beyond that went through something during the pandemic or have gone through something at any point in their life, how to grieve and how to bounce back. And, you know, your story is a very, very unique story. And it's a story that I am proud that we're able to talk about and to share and show here on Colors. So thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Sara Kamali. I'm a first-generation American whose parents were born in Afghanistan. I'm currently on Chumash land in California. Race is a sociopolitical construct that has been wielded as a tool of oppression and power. The term I prefer for race is skin color, and the term I use instead of racism is skin color oppression, because both of these terms point to the fact that superficial differences are exploited when discussing race and racism. In the United States, the notion that the white race is inherently biologically and culturally superior has justified centuries of denying human beings the same dignity, rights, and opportunities of their white counterparts. Examples include the enslavement of black people and the genocide of indigenous Americans to the xenophobic violence targeting many communities of color, including Asians, Latinos, and religious communities like Jews, Muslims, and Sikhs. This is despite the fact that whiteness itself is a fluid category that has changed over time. Race or the categorizing of people by physical features like skin color is also the underlying foundation of white supremacy, which is justified by a pseudoscience called eugenics, which really came to the fore in the 1800s. The false concept of race and the pseudoscience of eugenics have both been leveraged by white nationalists in Europe, Australasia, and North America, particularly the United States, to demand a white ethnostate oftentimes through terror. Ultimately, the concept of race is a fallacy because we are all one race, the human race. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. We'll talk with Darian K. Atkins. He's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service at the State Department. And he's been appointed diplomat in residence and here in the District of Columbia or the D.C. metro area. So we'll talk with him about what that means, why the State Department is doing this, and his experience there and throughout his life. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors.
Thank you again for listening. Thanks to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Osley, Julia Ziegler. Thank you to Rose Varner Gaskins. Thank you to Rachel Locke. Thank you as well to all of the people out there that have made these interviews possible. And I want to thank Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane for our music. And again, I want to thank you for listening. And most of all here, I want to tell you, please keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.